Okay, so Haman, Haman, he's, he's listening to his wife. He's listening to his trusted advisors. And they're telling him, it's a warning, it's a prophecy. If the man Mordecai is of Jewish descent, if he is a Jew, listen, Haman, you are going to fall. You will not prevail before him. You will fall before him. And the entire discourse, the whole thing about it, you have to understand, it serves as a, as a, a prophetic template. It serves as a prophetic picture of how it's all going to end at the end of the age. The, the grand finale of it all. The only difference is, instead of the characters being Mordecai and Haman, they are going to be Yeshua and Hasatan. be Yeshua and Satan. One thing I can tell you, for certain, it has been written, it has been prophesied, it has been foretold, Satan is going to fall before Yeshua at the end of days, at that great battle that he's going to plan to come out, he is going to fall. He will not prevail over Yeshua. Now, as we look at this discourse that is happening, this very intense conversation between Zeresh and Haman, it's actually at this time that we find, literally in the midst of this discourse, they're prophesying, telling him what's going to happen. It's at this time the king calls for Haman to be taken to the banquet. So the king's men comes, and this is evidenced in the very last verse in chapter 6, and we read the following, while they were still talking with him, in other words, his wife and his wise men, they're talking about he's going to fall if Mordecai's of Jewish descent. The king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared, at which time we break into today's message, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. The king comes right out and he asks his queen, What do you want? Whatever you want, I will make it happen. It will be done for you. We see something here something very important, and that is this. There's a very intimate and beautiful relationship that exists between the king and the queen. The king loves the queen. It is made evident. He isn't going to treat anyone else. He doesn't say, make this statement to anyone else in his kingdom, only one, to Esther, because he loves her. Now, this aspect of the relationship that we see being displayed here It's, again, profoundly prophetic in nature, deeply spiritual. Why do I say that? I say that because the very relationship of what we see manifesting here is the very image that exists in heaven and on earth. In other words, between the God who created heaven and earth and Israel. It's the very same relationship that exists. Let me take you to the Torah. It's a passage we've covered, but it really articulates this beautiful relationship. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it? Why is God near to it? Because He loves it. He loves Israel. What great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon Him. What a beautiful relationship. What a blessing for the people of God to be able to call upon their God for any reason. Any reason knowing that whatever they ask, it's going to be done. 
This is the reality of the relationship that exists between God and God's people. Let me build upon this concept even further and take you to Yeshua's teachings. And uh, you're going to see it mirrors the very same thing that Torah speaks of. It mirrors the very same relationship that exists between Ahasuerus and Esther. John 14, verse 13, Yeshua says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Does this sound familiar? It should, because it's exactly what Ahasuerus has just spoken to Esther. Ask, and it will be done for you. These are the words of Yeshua. This is the deeper meaning of what is actually taking place in our story. Let me take you to John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, Yeshua says, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. This is the promise. This is the relationship that we are supposed to have. Our relationship should look like that which is between Ahasuerus and Esther. It's that powerful and more. Think about it. 1 John 3.22, pay very close attention. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Isn't that interesting? Because we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Fascinating, because when you go to our story of Ahasuerus and Esther, why did the king speak those words? Ask whatever you want and I will give it to you. There's only one reason he spoke those words, and we already know why. Because Esther pleased the king. You won't hear these words come out of his mouth for Vashti. They won't come out. Only for one, for his queen, for Esther, he makes the statement, she had pleased the king. Everything is hers. Whatever she desires, it's going to be done. That is the promise. That's the promise for us today. I got to tell you, for me, there isn't anything greater on this earth than knowing that we can please the king. And that when we do please the king, whatever we ask will be done. There's nothing greater. There's no greater gift. And this is the promise we have through the Messiah, Yeshua. This is confidence. This is confidence. This gives us assurance. You want to talk about hope? This is it. This is the hope. That we have. It rests in the Messiah Yeshua. It rests in the words that he speaks. And the truth that he speaks. That if we keep his commandments. We do those things that please him. We have his ear. And we can be assured that when we talk to him. When we ask him for things. It will be done. We have that confidence. Going to verse 3. Esther's going to go on here. She's going to answer the king. The king has asked her what do you want? This is what she says. Then Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. This is mind-blowing. Because does Esther ask for infinite riches? Does she ask for a new wardrobe? Does she ask for a better living quarters? She could have asked for all of it, and she would have been given it. What did she ask for? She asked for her life. The life of her people. The question, 
Why is she asking for her life? The answer to that is because her life has been condemned to death. That's why. She has been condemned to death, and she's been condemned to death by Haman, by the scheming of Haman. And this is the reality all throughout Scripture regarding Israel and the working of the adversary. Spiritually speaking, the adversary has gone out from generation to generation to do what? To steal, kill, and destroy. He spends his days scheming like Haman has schemed against the people of God. This is what he does. He's notorious. This is his MO. In fact, if we go all the way back to the garden, that's the story. What is the story? You go all the way back to the garden. The serpent, Satan, was scheming. He was scheming to take down Adam and Eve. And he came through deception. And what happened? What happened to that? I'll tell you. Mankind received a death sentence. Because of what happened in the garden, because the scheming of Satan, mankind, had received a death sentence. The Apostle Paul articulates it this way in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, how did it happen? It happened through the scheming of the evil one. The fall. And all have been condemned. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jumping ahead to verse 18. Therefore, as through through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. See, this is Esther's problem. She has been condemned to death. That's condemnation. We have been condemned to death. The sin, everyone's sin, we've been condemned to death. But look at this. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. That's the good news. We have good news. We have hope, like Esther has hope. Our hope is in our King, King Yeshua. The Apostle Paul tells us, Borrowing the words from the prophet Joel, he says the following, Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is our hope. This is the way that we are going to be saved. Whoever calls upon Yeshua is going to be saved, despite being condemned for our sins. Despite that, we can be preserved. But there's a catch. There is a catch. You have to call upon the king. In our story in Esther, what does Esther do? Ultimately, how is she receiving salvation? She calls upon the king. And we know the end of the story. The end of the story is good news. The end of the story is the king responds. And he preserves her life. And she is given victory. She is given salvation. You know... There's a verse. I didn't put it up on the screen. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 4, the things that were written before were written for our learning, our doctrine, didaskalia in the Greek, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. 
I want to let you in on a little secret. The story of Esther. What Paul considered Scripture. That which is written. It is supposed to do something. It is supposed to instill something into us. You wonder why Satan wants to come in and rip out the Tanakh? The Old Testament, the Law, and the Prophets? Because it does something for us. It gives us comfort. It instills hope. The very opposite of what the Old Testament is being portrayed of today. Absolutely amazing. But that's its function. How does it do it? Because we read stories like Esther. The whole story is all about hope. It shows us the hell, the tribulation that you go through, but in the end, there is victory. That's what gives you strength. It will give you strength. Moving on to verse 4. Esther's going to tell the king why she's asking for her life. In verse 4 we read, For we have been sold. This is her response. We have been sold. Do you remember back in chapter 3? Haman had a very hefty investment. 10,000 talents of silver. 10,000 talents of silver. Do you know how much one talent is? They estimate it is 75 pounds. 75 pounds. One talent. 10,000 pieces. You're talking 750,000. I mean, look at this. 750,000 pounds of silver dedicated, invested for one reason. To destroy the people of God. To destroy the Jewish people. In other words, our adversary, you better look at this. Our adversary is going to use every means necessary to take us out. To distract us. Exactly what Dan was talking about. Part of what Dan was talking about today is Satan is putting up roadblocks and stumbling blocks all over. Getting us to look at the pretty lights. When we need to be focusing and praying to Yeshua. That's what we're called to. That's the truth. So here she says, we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. It just parallels that statement that Yeshua makes in John 10. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is exactly what Esther tells Ahasuerus. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Esther tells the king that they've been sold not as slaves. They've been sold to be killed, to be eradicated. How does the king respond to Esther's statement? Verse 5. So, the king, uh, so King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And when I read this passage as I was preparing this study, and you read this, I got to tell you, it sent chills down my spine. It's like you can feel the presence and the power, the authority of the king radiating, coming out right here. Who is he who would dare presume to do such a thing in his heart? You think about this, someone is coming against his beloved, the one he cherishes, the one, his wife, his queen. He is enraged. Who could possibly do this? Esther tells him in verse 6, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Let me tell you something. At the end of days, which we are, we're in. We're, at the, we're, we're coming up on the very, very end. 
and Yeshua is about ready to change his tone. To put on garments of vengeance. To bear that robe that we read about in Revelation 19 that is dipped in blood. And make no mistake, it isn't his blood. It's the blood of his enemies. And you better believe Satan is going to react exactly how Haman is reacting here. He is going to be pale. He is going to be paralyzed in fear at the glory and power of Yeshua. I want to give you some perspective so that you can kind of feel, just get an inkling of what Haman is feeling right now with the king rising up in his power. In Revelation 6 verse 14, days that are almost upon us, Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. You know, one thing that the Bible talks about is that before the glory and presence of the living God, the mountains will melt like wax. That's his glory. That's his power. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, those who are exalted, those who, the the, the people of the earth, highly esteemed, you are great. You have accomplished so much. The commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. This is going to be the response of the wicked at the glory of Yeshua. This is what Haman is feeling. They want to hide in the caves. Going on to verse 16. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The people of the earth, when they witness, and they will, Revelation 1-7, behold, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. When they witness the glory of Yeshua, they're going to lose it. They're going to absolutely lose it. Isaiah 13, verse 6, Wail! For the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. They won't even be able to move. They'll be frozen in fear. Every man's heart will melt. Verse 8. And they will be afraid. Pains and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. You want to know what Haman is feeling right now as a Ahasuerus is rising up in his power, this is it. This is what he feels. But why does this happen? Why is the king coming with such vengeance and terror? He's coming with vengeance and terror because he's coming to defend his wife. He's coming to defend Israel. This is exactly what Ahasuerus is doing this moment in our story. Moving on to verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath. Very different side of the king. He rises up in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther. Oh, what is he doing? Pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Haman is stricken with fear. It's interesting The very prophecy that his wife and his friends had told him would come to pass. If Mordecai is in fact a Jew, that he would fall before him, it's beginning to unfold. Right here, it's beginning to come to fruition. 
Because Haman is now begging for his life from Queen Esther. And isn't that ironic? The very person he thought to destroy, he thought to destroy the Jewish people, he's now begging for his life from. Last week, I briefly took you to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 23. And I took you there for one particular purpose. And that was to show you that Israel is untouchable. They cannot be moved. They cannot be destroyed. And this is why, you know, Balak, he calls Balaam and says, curse these people. He wants them cursed. Balaam is powerful. And he responds, I can't do it. My hands are tied. God has blessed them. Man can't reverse it. There was nothing that he could do. Well, I want to take you back to that passage and, and, and jump to the next chapter, chapter 24, because there's an interesting prophecy made concerning Israel. There's some interesting prophecies concerning the enemies of Israel and what is going to happen. And these prophecies, the reason we're going back there, they are relevant to where we're at in our story right now. They're relevant to the story of Esther. Numbers 24, verse 1, we read, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to seek to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Moving on to verse 3. Then he took up his oracle. Now, I want to be very clear. This isn't some magical staff. It isn't some magical stone or some magical person that he's calling upon. The statement in the Hebrew, it's just mashal. It simply means a, a, a proverb or it's translated as discourse. In other words, he takes up his prophecy. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He's going to prophesy. And he said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are opened. This is the beautiful thing about the Spirit of God. This is why you want the Spirit of God. It's because it opens your eyes. His eyes are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the visions of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Verse 5. How lovely are your tents, O Yaakov, your dwellings, O Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. And it moves on in verse 7. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. Now what is it saying? What does water do for the seed? It gives it life. It grows. It's sustained by the water. And it's saying it's going to be doused in it. There's going to be no shortage for this nation. They're going to be cared for by God. It goes on. His king shall be higher. No, stop. Whose king? The king of Israel. The rightful heir to the throne of David. King of Israel. His king will be higher than Agag. And his kingdom shall be exalted. Fascinating. The king of Israel is clearly portrayed being exalted over Agag. There's an actual move here of exaltation. And let me tell you why this is fascinating, what this has to do with our story today. If you remember, Haman is a what? He's an Agagite. He came through the lineage of Agag. And this prophecy alludes to the fact that he would be brought low while the king of Israel is going to be exalted. And thus, 
if the king of Israel is exalted, what does that tell you about his people? They are exalted with him. Now the passage goes on to say this in verse 15, dropping down. So he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are open, verse 16, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, verse 17. I see him. This is amazing. The Holy Spirit falls upon him. Balaam can now see. And what does he see? He is going to see the Messiah, the Mashiach ben David, the son of David. Look at this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of tumult. It's just funny that this word tumult, it's a euphemism for your backside for your derriere. In other words, it's saying the sons of shame. Sons of shame. What do we find Balaam seeing here? He sees Yeshua, the star of Israel. And with his coming, we are told that he is going to destroy the enemies of Israel, which, interestingly enough, this is exactly what is going to unfold in our story in Esther. In other words, what I'm showing you is how interwoven Scripture really is. How interwoven the story of Esther is. Numbers is saying the same thing that Esther is saying. Over and over again, they're prophesying of the same story. Now, Balaam goes on to prophesy about the enemies of Israel. And listen to what he says. And Adam shall be a possession, Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. This is the prophecy. Israel will do valiantly. They will be triumphant. They will be victorious. Take it to the bank. It's the promise. This is the hope. This is the hope right here. And guess what? There isn't anything that anyone can do about it. That should give you confidence. That should give you the assurance that you need to go through the valleys, the trials, and the tribulations that you're in and that you're yet to face, that this nation is yet to face. Moving on to verse 19. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion. I love this because it goes on to talk about Yeshua, the prophecy of Yeshua. Out of Jacob, out of Israel is going to rise one. One. And he is the one that's going to have dominion. What Isaiah the prophet says to his government, there will be no end. This is the one being spoken of. And what's he going to do? He's going to destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek. And he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. Who was the king of Amalek? Who was the king of the Amalekites as we come to 1 Samuel? Agag. Who's the descendant of Agag? Isn't that interesting? Haman. This is a prophecy that Amalek will fall. And let me tell you something. This is a prophecy that literally reverberates into the story of Esther because Haman, who is a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, he's going to be experience exactly what Balaam saw of Amalek. Exactly. All these stories are saying the same thing. They're telling us the same thing over and over. Different stories happening in different generations pointing to one thing. Yeshua is Lord. 
He will deliver Israel, and the enemies will be destroyed. That's the story. That's the theme. Keeps reoccurring all throughout Scripture. I want to draw your attention before we continue. There's one thing that I want to draw your attention to, and that's this last statement. I'll highlight it. Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. This passage is a total revelation of how Haman's life is going to be played out. Haman, remember, he was first, which is to say he's exalted above all others. He was glorified, he was admired, he was rich beyond measure, he was feared by all. But in due time, he was going to be brought down. He would be put last, just as it was prophesied in Numbers 24 of Amalek. Now, how many times have we recited the statement, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, and might I add, completely out of context. And what do I mean by that? We usually like to state the statement when we're in a situation that we don't want to be in or we think someone else is putting us in a situation that we don't want to be in. Or perhaps it's because you ended up at the end of the Oneg line and you may not say it, but you're thinking it. First shall be last, last shall be first. Huh. And it makes you feel good inside. Let me tell you something, that is not what the statement means And very, very few people realize the weight and the gravity of this statement. This is a statement that exposes illusion. This is a statement that exposes delusion. It's a statement of judgment of those who will be saved and those who will not be saved. Very different than what is understood. Let me show you how Yeshua uses the statement in context. Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where you are from. Going to verse 26, and you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank, in your presence, and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Now, it's interesting, if you read Matthew 7, which is the same thing, just a little different terminology, it talks about, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many wonders in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Same thing. We go on to verse 28. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out, verse 29. They will come from the east and west, from the north and south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, listen to this, there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. How is this statement used? It's used in the context of salvation. So when you mumble to somebody, well, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, you're actually telling them, you are lost and I am found. Understand the weight, the gravity of that statement. We definitely want to tread softly. Amen? So when we read this, this, this statement in verse 20 in chapter 24 of Numbers, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. This is a statement declaring Amalek's destruction. 
It's a death sentence. And this is Haman's future. A future we're about to see unfold. Going back to Esther, verse 8 and chapter 7. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch. Now you have to understand, there is no question that there is a play on words here. Intentionally by the author recording this the way he recorded it. There's a play on words. What was the prophecy that Haman's wife told him would happen? If Mordecai is of Jewish descent, you will fall before him. And this is quite literally happening. He is falling upon Esther, which is to say he's falling before Mordecai. This is a play on words. Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You want to talk about the power of the king, the power of his words. Literally, we see here as the king is speaking with his mouth against Haman, we're literally told as the words are leaving his mouth, action is taken. That very second. Let me ask you, who comes to mind when you think about this passage and the power that's being displayed by the words of the king? There's only one, the Lord of heaven and earth. Because when he speaks, it is so. When he said, let there be light, the light didn't hold back and deliberate and say, well, let me think about it. He spoke and immediately there was light. It's the voice of God. Isaiah 55, the Lord talks about the words that proceed from his mouth. They don't return to him void. They will accomplish the thing that they've been sent for. Cannot change it. That's the power and the authority of the king. It is awesome. And this is the very imagery we are given here in regard to the words of Ahasuerus. The second he speaks against Haman, action is taken. If you remember... At the beginning of this series, I brought you to that parable Yeshua spoke in Matthew 22. There's a parable that describes with incredible accuracy exactly the whole story of Esther. The only thing is, is I never completely finished the parable until today. So what I want to do is I want to take you back to this parable and show you the very final words of Yeshua because it is relevant to what we are seeing unfold right here. It is very powerful. In Matthew 22, verse 9, Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, from bad and good, both from bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. It was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man. There who did not have a wedding garment. Let me tell you something. You have to pay attention to the details. They are so critical because they open up a world of understanding. This parable, Yeshua is very clear that the man identifies a man singular. He says he saw a man. In other words, something captured the attention in regard to this particular man, who, by the way, is not named. There's no name. There's a generic term. It's just man. Or in Hebrew, you'd say ish. There's no name given to this man, yet he draws the full attention of the king. 
He draws his attention. He saw a man there, and there's something about this man that is very significant. He doesn't have a garment. But then we go on to read this. It gets better. In verse 12, Then he said to him, Friend. Friend. So critical you pay attention to the details in the address. He says, Friend. Heta eros in the Greek. Now let me tell you something, and this will come into play in a second. Heta eros is very, very rarely used in the New Testament, only a couple times. Philos, typically when we see friend or friends in the New Testament, it's the Greek philos, not heteros. Heteros is used here. Friend. Let me tell you why this is important. When you go back to the Passover Seder, the Pesach Seder that Yeshua has with his disciples, the Gospels record something amazing. Specifically, the Gospel of John talks about the fact that Judas, he dips with Yeshua, right? Are you with me? Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him, dips the bread with him. We are told in the 13th chapter of John, something happens to Judas. Something that's not recorded anywhere else. Satan entered Judas. And from that moment on, he immediately fled. He fled from the face of Yeshua. It's just an amazing thing. And so here is Satan. He goes to the chief priest. You know the story. He goes to betray. But it's Satan in Judas's body. Let me tell you how this plays in. As Judas, in Matthew 26, he comes to the Lord and he says, the one I kiss, that's the one you need to take. He goes and he betrays Yeshua with a kiss. And do you know how Yeshua responds? Friend, why have you come? What are you doing here? He says, heteros, friend. Yeshua is looking Satan in the eye. Yeshua against Satan. And he calls him friend. Same, very same term we find in our parable. You cannot make this stuff up. And look at what he says. Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And what is his response? He was speechless. What was the response of Haman? He is terrified in fear. You can't make this up. It's all intertwined. Scripture is amazing. The truth of it. Then the king said to the servants, now this is what's going to happen. Bind him, hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to tell you, this is exactly what is unfolding in Esther. Haman has been what? In a sense, he's been bound, hand and foot. They covered his face. They took him away. Now what's going to happen? Are they taking him to the day spa? Not likely. Now, Harba, uh, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordechai, who spoke good on the king's behalf. What did Yeshua do? That's all he did. He spoke good upon his father's behalf. Amazing. He's standing in the, at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. The words came out of his mouth, Hang him on it. Did they deliberate? The very next words are, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was subsided. How's that for irony? 
Haman builds these gallows. One intention, kill Mordecai. And what happens? He himself is hung on those very gallows. Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that just Torah-like? Isn't that just like the golden rule? We read in Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You can take it to the bank. Whatever you do to men, it's going to be done unto you. It's Torah. It's the truth of Torah. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16. If a false witness rises against any, and let me ask you, Haman, or tell you, Haman is a false witness. There's no question about it. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the Kohanim and before the Shoftim who serve in those days. Verse 18. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he had thought to do to his brother, so you shall put evil away from among you. Let me tell you something. King Ahasuerus is putting away the evil from among them. Taking Haman out. He's experiencing... Haman is experiencing the full weight of Torah. And the beauty of this is the enemies are destroyed and salvation has come to the Jewish people. Salvation has come to Esther. I'm going to close with this passage. Psalms 37 verse 12. The wicked plots against the just. Take it to the bank. This is exactly what did Haman do. He's a schemer. What does Satan do? They scheme. We need to start understanding the reality. The wicked are scheming against us right now. And you guys are not in the dark. Do you read the papers? Do you read the news? The wicked are scheming and plotting to destroy everything that is good in this country. There's not a moral fabric left in it. The pastors are going along with it. We have very, very weak and feeble Christians flailing about, flopping like fish out of water. Where are the men of God to stand up for righteousness? We must expect this plotting, this scheming. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. Remember, Haman hates Mordecai. He hates the Jewish people. He hates God's people. The Lord laughs at him. And this takes you back to what Paul talks about in Romans 15. The patience and comforts of the scripture. We will have hope. I like this passage. This gives me hope to know that my God, my King Yeshua, is scheming against the wicked who are destroying everything that is good. Who are beheading people for the gospel of Yeshua. Amazing. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow. Oh, cast down the poor and needy to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. This is hope. This is truth. We need to rely upon this truth. Put our faith and hope in Yeshua because the king is coming back. And all the wrongs that you have been wronged, they're going to be made right. Justice is going to be served.